Chapter 9 of The Knights of the Square Table. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Rebecca Wildy. The Knights of the Square Table by Secretary Hawkins. The Tall Boy. You know how it is when a fellow passes a few days quietly at a camp, and nights, during which no sound breaks his peaceful slumber. He begins to think that nothing is going to happen, and that it's going to be easy sailing forever, world without end. Well, that's the way I began to feel after a few days at our little camping place. And I thought that Pooley and his knights of the square table would never find out where we were. The boys were all happy as larks. They fished half the day, were in the swimming hole twice a day, and roamed the woods as much as they pleased. Never did any of us see a sign of Pooley or his gang. Lou Hunter would take his guitar every night after supper, and the boys would sit around him and listen to him play and sing. And Lou could sing. Oh boy, never yet have I heard a voice like Lou's. Perry Stokes came as near matching it as anyone, and Dick Ferris could warble a pretty high note, but neither could sing like Lou. But not all our boys like to sing. That is, some have other pastimes they'd rather do than sing, and I guess we can't blame them much for that because most boys do like to play around when they get the chance. It's only times when they can't be out playing that they'd rather sing. However, Lou Hunter had formed a quartet. Dick Ferris, who sang tenor, and Johnny McLaren, who sang alto, were with Lou almost all day long, practicing. And Jerry Moore, who sang bass, was just a little bit harder to handle. But, after supper time, he stayed pretty close to camp, and then it was that the quartet got busy, and to the tune of that old guitar, and led by Lou's beautiful soprano voice, they would make the woods ring with their harmony, and when the chorus would be reached, every one of us boys would join in. Some of the boys said that it sounded so much better when everybody joined in the chorus. I didn't say anything, but I thought to myself that I'd rather just hear those four boys sing by themselves. Now, it was on the fifth night, when after supper we gathered outside the tent, and Lou's quartet began their nightly concert. We sat in a circle, and Shadow Loomis sat on one side of me, and Harold Court on the other. We listened to the songs for a long time. Between songs we would talk about old times in the clubhouse, happy and knowing that we would be back there again when the leaves began to turn. Doc Waters would sit in the shadows, listening, as he smoked his long white pipe. We had kept him busy running up to see us every night and chasing back to take care of his patients during the day. But Doc liked to do it, so everything was all right. Lou and his quartet had sung all the old songs we loved so well, those that we sang on many a cold and frosty night in the clubhouse, and then they sang a new one on us that we had not heard before, although it, too, was as old as the hills. They had been practicing quietly for several days, and this was the first time they sang it. It was about a black sheep. When the robin returns to his nest After straying away from the rest That's how it starts out, but I just can't remember how it goes because, you see, it was one that the boys had never sung in the clubhouse. Lou likes songs like that, songs that make you think, and before you know it, if you listen close, you'll find there's a pulling at your heart, and your eyes are misty, 
and you reach up with your sleeve and brush a tear away. Now, as soon as they began to sing that song, I saw Shadow Loomis glance up sharply and watch the singers. And I could not help but think of his older brother, the Rolling Stone as we called him, John Loomis. He was a rover, if there ever was one. Once he had come back and we had kept him with us for about a year. But then he had ducked out and was gone, roving again. I knew what Shadow was thinking as he listened to that song. Of the boy who decided from his father and mother to roam. Through his travels he may be misguided. But when finally the black sheep comes home, everything that he did is forgotten as we welcome him back to the fold. Once again he will sit by the table as he did in the days of old. And we weep tears of joy as we whisper, my boy, when the black sheep returns to the fold. Once more, the quartet swung into the chorus, and some of our boys tried to join in, humming the part when they could not remember the words. Shadow rose silently to his feet and slipped into the shadows of the trees beside the tent. I watched him go. Then I got up too and joined him on the path that led down to the creek. You needn't come, Hawkins, he said in a quiet voice as he turned and saw me. I just want to be alone for a little while. That's all. I took hold of his arm. I know, Shad, I said to him. I know. By golly, boy, I bet you I felt the same way when I heard him sing that. Reminded me of John. The Rolling Stone, broken Shadow. You might as well call him what he is. We haven't heard a word from him since he left. He oughtn't have done it, Hawkins. Pop's done with him for good. He ain't got a home, if he only knew it. I nodded my head. Yes, I said. You can't blame your daddy for feeling that way, Shadow. But a fellow like me, I can't feel hard to John. It ain't his fault. He can't help it. He's got the roaming fever in his bones, and it's bound to come out. Ever since he was a little kid, said Shadow, he'd run away from home. When he was three years old, he was gone for two days, and Mother says she found him down at Hobbs Ferry, where some kind people had taken care of him till he was called for. That proves it, I said. He's a roamer, Shadow. But I'm through with him, said Shadow in a savage tone. He spoilt my life. I never know when he might turn up looking like a tramp and shame me. He's not much account. Don't talk about him like that, I said. No matter what he is, you can't forget that he's your brother. No brother of mine, said Shadow with a shake of his head. I'm cutting loose from him for good. I'll tell you what, Hawkins, if I ever meet him again, I'll pass him up like a bad coin. I won't ever recognize him. And if he stops me, I'll tell him that I don't know him. And that I don't even remember seeing him in my whole life. I sighed and turned away. As I did so, there came to our ears the snapping of a twig in the dark beyond the trees. Both Shadow and I were on the alert at once. Of course, we both had one and the same thought, that one of Pulley's pals had at last found his way to our camp. 
We waited in suspense there for fully five minutes, expecting to see or hear something more. But all was silent. There had been a lull in the music over at the tent, and now again it started up. The sun shines bright on my old Kentucky home. It was usually the last song before turning in, and I was about to tell Shadow to come on and go to bed, when, taking advantage of the sound of the singing, the fellow who had made the twigs snap in the dark left his cover and rose out of the bushes. He was a tall boy. His shadow lay black against the rippling surface of the creek, for a moment only. Then he had leaped over the low bushes that stood in his path and disappeared in the gloom toward the creek. "'Who was that?' whispered Shadow to me. I did not answer him, but I thought to myself that I knew. The night of the visit of the pony riders I had seen such a form silhouetted against the sky. Just such a tall figure, who moved as this figure had moved, and who leaped from his horse with much the same movement as this figure leaped over the bushes.' I can remember even now the voice of his companion calling, Get him, Watts! Yes, I knew it was Watts. And whoever this Watts was, he was a tall boy and a fellow to be afraid of. Come on, Shad, I said, and I led the way back to the tent. The boys were all making ready for sleep, and we followed suit. Now followed the day of my first meeting with a knight of the square table. Strange that it should be me instead of any of the others. But I had finished my writing, and it was so hot in the tent that I decided nothing would do for me now but to get away from everybody on the place. You know how it is when your nerves get all worked up, and you just don't feel like seeing any of the boys. You want to get as far away from them as you possibly can, and that's what I did. I left the tent while all the other boys were splashing around in the swimming hole, and I made a beeline for the next point, that is, the northern bend where the creek winds itself back again into another horseshoe curve. Here I sat down on a flat rock that lay among a bunch of ferns. I wondered at the whiteness and the glossy surface of that rock. It was about four feet long, but it had an irregular shape that reminded me of the map of Africa in my geography. I sat down upon it, but immediately I thought of Africa, and I got on my knees and began to trace upon it the Nile. The Nile and the Zambezi rivers, Zanzibar, Kimberley, and the other well-known places that I remembered on my map of Africa. The ferns that lined the borders of the rock seemed to me as the tropical woods of Africa itself. It's funny how a boy's mind turns into thoughts such as these. I picked one fern and stuck it in the ground where I thought Cape Town should be. If I should travel northeast from the Cape of Good Hope, thought I to myself, I should reach a certain country where there would be Zulu people, and then, if I took a northern course and had enough gunpowder left, I should be able to reach the Matabele country. Suddenly, as I knelt, there came the sound of laughter. It was a real, boyish laugh, and I heard its echo come back from the horseshoe bend above me. I turned, sitting upon my heels, and looked toward the bend. There, midway between the bushes and the willows, stood a figure. What a figure it was! It was a boy, to be sure, but such a boy! Never have I seen such a tall youngster! He seemed to be a man who hadn't had enough time to grow in, but who still held the grin of a boy on his face. Hawkins, he yelled. That's me, I yelled back to him. What do you want? In a moment came back to me my responsibility. I had to keep the camping place a secret. I dared not move until this stranger had gone. It was up to me to keep him here, talking, until he went away of his own accord, 
and until he was well out of sight and free from any chance of following me. I would have to sit by this old flat rock that looked like the map of Africa. Come on down, I cried to him. He strode down. He looked like one of those tall mountaineer boys that I had seen once in the Cumberlands. You didn't think I'd know you, did you? he asked with a grin. Who are you? I demanded. I ain't in the habit of talking to fellas I don't know. His grin faded at once from his face. A scowl showed upon his forehead. You're high-toned, he said. Durn if I can see what you got to be high-toned about when you talk to me, Secretary Hawkins. I got upon my feet and made him a low bow. Excuse me, I said. You know me, but I've never had the pleasure of hearing your name, fella. Who might you be? Who might I be? He laughed aloud. Who mightn't I be, Secretary Hawkins? I might be the devil for all you care. My name's Grimm. I hope you'll remember it. Curly Grimm, they calls me. See it? He snatched off his cap as he spoke and showed me his curly head. His hair ran in ringlets about his scalp. Glad to know you, I said, stepping forward and offering my hand. He stood stock still, staring, and just then as he stood there, there came back to my mind the picture of that dark figure that had leaped over the bushes during the night previous. I could have sworn it was the same. He shook his head. You don't want to shake hands with me, fella, he said. I'm your enemy. I got orders to take you on sight and drag you back to... To where? I asked as he hesitated. But again he shook his curly head. No, he said, not me. You leave me off this once, Secretary Hawkins. I can read faces I kin, and if I can read yours right, I ain't the one as will drag you back to the square table to... Go on, I said. Don't be afraid of me, Grim. He stepped just a foot closer. He looked straight in my eyes. I thought to myself how easy it would be for him to clout me one on the head and drag me if he wanted to. But he didn't. He stepped closer, about a foot, and gazed into my eyes. Hawkins, he said, they've got you spotted. You're standing in the way, boy. They don't care about the others. They know you're the one that will spoil their plans, and Pooley believes them. Honest, cross my heart. Grim, I broke in. You seem like a decent sort of a fella. Tell me, what is the quarrel that the knights have with us? What is it that I have to do? Go on, he interrupted me. Don't tell me you don't know. Watts is after you tooth and nail, and Pulley has forgotten Acum. But what have we done? I asked him excitedly. We have no fight with the fellas in Pulley's gang. We want no trouble, Grim, for the love of Mike. Cool down, cool down, he said with a wave of his hand. For two cents, I'd take you back to him. Try it, I said hotly, for I was getting mad. Try it, friend Grim. He tried it. He stepped back an instant. Then he stepped forward and raised a threatening fist. If I hadn't been quick enough, he would have caught me squarely under the chin and sent me flat on my back. But, thanks to Shadow Loomis and Harold Court, I had been trained a bit in the art of boxing. I caught his right and my left, and before he could bring his left up, I planted a square blow upon his jaw. It made him sag back like a helpless sack full of meal, and before he could gain his feet, I gave him my left on the side of the head. He went over like a tree that has been cut down. As I looked at him lying there completely knocked out, I felt a strange thrill. I had beaten a boy that I had thought could put it all over me, and I was surprised and thrilled. I had beaten Grim, one of the tallest of the knights of the square table. I ran, while the running was good, 
I figured as how if I stayed there till he came to his senses, he might follow me and find out our secret camping place. I left him there, knowing that he was not badly hurt, for I had just knocked him out, and he might be up in a minute or two. I had just cleared the point when I heard his yelling, and I knew that he was up and after me, calling for his pals as he ran. But I beat him to it. I gained the camp long before the echoes of his shouts had died out. I told Shadow and Dick Ferris about it, and they both agreed that we had better tell the story to Doc Waters when he came in the evening. Which we did. End of chapter 9